We turn then to the book of Nehemiah, the ninth chapter. Nehemiah chapter 9, because this is a relatively lengthy prayer, um, I'll be covering the introduction to it in the message. So we're going to pick it up in the middle of verse 5. In the middle of verse 5, where we have this command that is given to the people that have gathered there in Jerusalem on this appointed day to stand up and bless the Lord. And that's where we'll begin, in the middle of verse 5. So the Levites said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abram and brought him out of the earth of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. And made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiff-necked and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Shion, king of Heshbon and of the land of Og king of Bashan. 
You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. They captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the land of their, the hand of their enemies. And after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophet, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit And its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. As far as the reading of the word of God. Let's again bow in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do this evening confess before you that there are many times when we <clears throat> believe in the power of prayer as an ascent. But Father, our hearts think that situations are beyond your control. Father, we have read again your mighty works through history. And we know, Father, that you are in control of all things. 
We just pray, Father, that in our prayer life we would pray with that confidence and that boldness, knowing that we are praying to the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And, Father, that your will on this earth would be done. And, Father, we just pray for our nation as well, that in this time of turmoil, that you would pour your spirit out upon it. And, Father, that you would again turn hearts back to Christ. And, Father, that we would again be known as a God-fearing and a God-serving nation. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. The prayer of Nehemiah chapter 9 is, according to most commentators, the longest recorded prayer in the scriptures. But you know what? It takes six and a half minutes to pray it. I find that interesting because... When one says it's the longest recorded prayer, one might think hours and hours and hours. And yet as one reads it, it takes six and a half minutes. Now one would expect, of course, that as it was prayed the first time, one is not praying it as one reads it, right? So it probably took longer than the six and a half minutes, but you and I can read this prayer. In fact, we could say we could pray this prayer. In the six and a half minute span of ordinary reading time. So we want to look at three things regarding this particular prayer tonight. First of all, the context. What's going on here? Why this prayer at this particular time? Secondly, the content of the prayer. And then thirdly, the corporate nature of the prayer. So first of all, the context of the prayer. We, we actually have it specified for us. If we go back now to the first part of chapter 9, we read in the very first verse, now on the 24th day of this month, the people were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Well, that doesn't necessarily help us too much, but if we go back into number, or Nehemiah chapter 8, we learn that there had been the celebration of the Feast of Booths. Perhaps you can actually see that title in your scriptures above the 13th verse of Nehemiah chapter 8. That means that as the chapter 8 tells us, this is the seventh month. So this is the seventh month, the 24th day. But it's the seventh month, not according to the civil calendar. It's the seventh month according to the religious calendar. Remember, the Jews operate under two sets of calendars. One of which gives to us the religious festivals and feasts, such as the Feast of Booths, such as... uh, uh, Passover, the Day of Atonement, that sort of thing. But there's also another civil calendar that marks the beginning of the year. Well, here's the interesting little thing. The seventh month, the 24th day, would bring us to October 24. That's this coming Saturday. Now, I I didn't plan out this series of messages to somehow coordinate with that, that, oh, I'll I'll get to nine on on that day. In fact, it wasn't until I started working on this sermon that I realized, hmm, interesting, that if we go back in time, we go back in history, 
right? the anniversary, as it were, of the first time this prayer was prayed would be this coming Saturday, the 24th of October. Would have been for the Jews the 24th day of the seventh month. But it's pinpointed even more for us. Because if we go down to starting, for example, at verse 3, it tells us, and they stood up in their place, that is, the Levites, right? They stood up in their place along with all the people who have assembled there and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Well, it's quite obvious that the prayer that we read is the confession part. Now, how do we know which quarter it is? So the Jews divide the day into four quarters, six to nine. Well, when it says that they read from the law for a quarter of the day, we know it's not the first quarter. How do we know that? Because the first quarter is set aside for the morning sacrifice. So they would not have done anything else other than the morning sacrifice. That's what takes place in the time period of six to nine. We know as well that the time period from three in the afternoon to six p.m. is the time of the evening sacrifice. And they would not have been involved in any other activities during the evening sacrifice. So if we think about it, then it means from six to nine, the morning sacrifice was done. Now for a quarter of the day, they read from the book of the law. They read God's will for their lives. That's from nine to noon. And now we read, for another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. We know then that on the 24th day of the seventh month, between the hours of noon and three o'clock, sometime in that framework, this prayer was prayed. And it's a prayer because there is a concern that is being addressed. You know what the concern is? The concern is they've just read the law of God and they realize how sinful they are. They realize how stubborn, how stiff-necked their ancestors have been, but they also realize that in their own hearts. They are struck to the core by God's word. By the truth of that word. By the truth of God's commands. It comes at them full force and they stagger back as it were and say, we need to confess our sins. That's what the prayer of Nehemiah 9 is about. It is about confession of their sins as the people of God. So what does the prayer include? What is the content? Well, 
There's a lot going on in here, right? There's a lot happening. And I, I don't mean to read over and reread great portions of it, but I think one thing that clearly stood out as we were hearing the Word of God, as you were following along with the Word of God, as you were paying attention to the Word of God, as you were being attentive to the Word of God, is praise. On several occasions, this psalm just, as it were, places before us the awesome being of God. It, it, it draws from His creative power. It draws from His miraculous power. It draws from His sovereign work. But it, it comes, as it were, an eruption of praise out of their hearts as they think and reflect upon who God is. Just listen again to that, that introduction. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone. You made heaven and the heavens of heaven and all their host and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them and all the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord. Remember where we were this morning? That how from infancy you know the certainty Okay, there's no hesitation in this prayer, is there? There's no halting. Well, we think maybe you're God. We think maybe there's other ways or possibilities. No, you are God and you made it and you are sovereign over everything. The prayer includes praise. Secondly, it includes a lot of history. Okay? We, we might read this and go, this is, it sounds like kind of a history lesson. We go, that's prayer? Yes, yes. We, we might think, well, aren't you supposed to be a little more creative than that? No. God loves hearing about what he has done. That's the reason for the reiteration of the history. But it sets in context, here is the goodness of God. This is what God has done. He made a covenant with Abraham. He, gave, he brought us out of the land of slavery. He, he brought us to Mount Sinai. He brought us through the wilderness. He delivered us from our enemies. He gave us kings and, and we turned away. But it's about history. It's about that which God has done. See, really, when you stop to think about this, this prayer, there's very little about today, that, that 24th day of the seventh month. But there's a lot about the past. And there's something for us to learn there. Maybe prayer isn't always about this moment in time. Maybe part of prayer Maybe a good portion of prayer 
is about that which God has done in the past. Maybe we are so in this moment because of our focus on ourselves that what looking into the past does is you can't look in the past and focus on ourselves because we weren't in the past. So who is there to focus on in the past but God? And that's what prayer ought to be about, right? It ought to be about God. And I think you can attest to the fact without me reading over and over and over all those selections that deal with that. But it also includes confession. Verses 16 through 21, verses 26 through 31, verses 33 and 34. Now a lot of that confession is about as it were, their ancestors, their fathers. And and you get the right perspective here, right? Some of that confession is about things that happened hundreds and hundreds of years before the 24th day of the seventh month at noon. But do you notice what's interesting about their confession? There is a living connection to that past. The sins of their forefathers are not in some way void of their thinking. They realize that the past sins have something to do with the present realities that they are facing. Dwell upon that for just a moment, please. Before we become too dismissive in this day and age of the past, listen to what they're doing. They realize that the sins of generations in the past are bearing fruit in their lives at this moment. For for those who lived and worshipped the golden calf. Folks, that was over a thousand years from this. And yet you see, they realize where they are today has something to do with the stiff-neckedness of those people. Because you see, it's not those people. They see a connection with themselves to those people. It's not that they sinned, it's that we sinned. We as God's people, we as the church, Old Testament church, we as the sheep of God's pasture, we sinned. And they confess that. But they also acknowledge they themselves, right? We too, we too here today, We too are guilty. We too have sinned. We too have fallen short. We too are not the people that you call us to be according to your word and by your law. It is from those occurrences within this prayer that, that this prayer is known as the prayer of confession. Now, 
some people, some commentators call it the great prayer of confession. I hazard a little bit of saying it's the great prayer. But you get the point. This, this passage, commentators and the church of Jesus Christ throughout time has looked at it and said, there is something very important for us to understand and to grasp out of this six and a half minute prayer of confession. So there's praise, there's history, there's confession, but there's also petition. There's also them coming before the Lord. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. See, now they're in the present. Now they're in their situation. They're looking about them. They're looking at their situation. Persia's still in charge. They're not a free people. They're still under the yoke. In fact, they call it slavery. They call it a burden. Yes, they've rebuilt the temple. Yes, they've rebuilt the altar. Yes, they've rebuilt the wall. Yes, they've set the city gate. They did it in a remarkable short period of time. But they realize, they realize there should be more. Let not it seem too little to you, God. What a prayer for today. As we look at our situation, our circumstances, as we look at an election 15 days away, Lord, let it not seem too little to you. What is going on and what is happening? Lord, don't, don't let this just be some small insignificant thing. Lord, we're calling it to your attention. Not for us as citizens, of this nation, but as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, Lord. Lord, look at what this means. Lord, let it not seem too little. Let not more innocent children's lives seem like a little thing in your eyes, O oh Lord. Let not the handcuffing of your church, let not the handcuffing of the gospel, let not the handcuffing of your word seem like a little thing to you, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, don't let it seem too little. Verses 36 and 37. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Now, they're not running around with chains on. Right? But the slavery is in the sense of all their work and all their effort does not go as an opportunity of giving to the Lord. It goes back to Persia best of what they have is being sucked away from them. We are slaves. Lord, let this not seem like a little thing in your eyes. There is petition. 
Fifth, it includes love. How many times does not he come back to the theme of the steadfast love of the Lord? Of God's graciousness, of God's mercy. Oh, that steadfast love of the Lord. A great exercise is to begin in Psalm 1 and go through the Psalms and read how often this comes back. Yeah, it was there in Psalm 100, isn't it? Steadfast love of the Lord. See, as, as, as this prayer is being offered by God's people, as they deal with the realities of the life in which they're de- looking at, as they deal with the realities of their own sin, they know the steadfast love of the Lord. They keep coming back to it. His mercy, His pardon. They draw upon that strength of His steadfast love. And lastly, there is Christ. You say, where is Christ in this passage? There's not one mention of Jesus. There's not one mention of the Christ. Where do you find that? In the covenant. Because the covenant that is established, the covenant that is talked about here is the covenant in Christ. God's promises, God's covenant promises are always in Christ. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Every promise that God makes finds its fulfillment in Christ. See, that's, that's, that's for you and I, looking back at Nehemiah chapter 9. We see Christ in this glorious covenant relationship. A covenant that we learned this morning, right? We, we, we take that cup and, and what does Jesus say? This is a new covenant in my blood. This is a covenant in Christ. And all those promises of God, those promises of love and of mercy, of forgiveness, of being a blessing to his people, find their fulfillment not in ourselves, but find their fulfillment in Christ. Where else do we see Christ? Do you see where this passage ends? What do they do? At the end of this, they go, wow, man, that was really moving. You know what? We need to make a covenant. We promise never to do this again. We promise we're going to live as God's people. Now, let me ask you a question. Did they do it? Just read the rest of the book of Nehemiah. I'll, I'll short answer it for you. No, they fail and they fail miserably. Why? Because every covenant that you and I can make with God is doomed to failure, just like Adam's. But you see, there was one who made covenant with the Father. That's Jesus Christ. And in that covenant that he made with the Father, he was perfectly obedient. So that we do speak of the steadfast love of the Lord, not because of who we are, not because of what we have done, but because of Christ's perfect obedience, of the shedding of his blood. Third, There is the corporate nature 
of this prayer. They're in worship. This is a worship service we're reading about in Nehemiah chapter 9. This is Old Testament worship service. How do I know it? Because the Levites are in charge. The Levites are the one there, not Nehemiah. This is a, a time of worship. And in the midst of this worship, this prayer of God's people, in the midst of the worship of God comes this prayer of confession. It's not a Lord's Day. It's not a Sabbath. But they're there. You realize the importance of the moment and the significance of the time. So it'd be correct to say Nehemiah is but isn't praying. This is not the prayer of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not offering these words. Remember, Nehemiah is neither prophet, he is neither priest, nor he is king. At this point, he is governor, but he is not king. It is the Levites in charge of worship. He isn't praying, but he is. He is. See, sometimes it's just not our turn. Sometimes it's just not our turn. To pray audibly. Sometimes it's just not our turn to open our mouths. Sometimes we pray by listening, by hearing, and by our amen. I have heard. I have listened. I agree. I testify. See, that's why at the conclusion of of, I think just about every prayer that, that I'm mindful of, that I, I, I tried to be mindful of, especially our congregational prayers, I say, and all God's people say, why? Why, why? why do I seek to elicit from you the amen? Because it's not me praying. Oh, I might be the audible voice, but it is we as the body of Christ. It is we as the church. We are praying. We are coming before the Lord in prayer. Know what I used to do when I was a kid in high school? Know what happened when the minister got to the long prayer? Some of you probably did it too, right? Minister gets to the long prayer. Notice how we designated it. We, we just said it was, took a really long time. We weren't even thinking about the congregation. You take the songbook out of the rack. You put it up on the pew in front of you. You take your knee. You put it up on that. And you lean back and you spread out your arms. And within three minutes, you're sleeping.
Now, I don't see that happening at Little Farms. Maybe that's one of the reasons churches went to chairs, because you'd tip the chair over in front of you. Okay? Can't do that with a pew. Right? We were missing something, weren't we? We were missing the connection of being part of a corporate body in worship, in prayer to God. That's Nehemiah's involvement here. But there's one other thing I want to leave you with. Can't force this. Can't make it a requirement. It's certainly not a requirement of our salvation. But you know, as I was preparing this prayer, or this message, I couldn't help but think, that's this Saturday. And I hear this plea coming from these people. We are in distress. Maybe. Maybe what we should do for six minutes and 30 seconds this coming Saturday sometime between noon and three we should turn to Nehemiah 9. And we should pray this prayer. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Oh, this isn't some magical portion. This isn't some, oh, we're going to make God do something. No. If we do it with that attitude, this means nothing. But if your heart is so moved, if you see the distress truly, as these people saw, if you see your own sin, if you see the sin of Jesus Christ, church, for generations and generations and generations, maybe you might be so moved is to open up God's Word and to pray the prayer of Nehemiah 9. 6.30, or 6.30, 10.24, between noon and 3. You know what? Here's an opportunity to actually do something good with your tweeting, with your twittering, with your snapchatting. Pass it on. Pass it on. Let's, as God's people, pray. For we are in distress. And we have sinned. But God is merciful. And God's steadfast love is poured out to us because of the one who kept covenant, Jesus Christ. Six minutes, 30 seconds. Nine, 10, 24, between noon and three. Father, be pleased 
to hear your children pray. In and for the sake of Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen.